There's a section of Fordham University's Walsh Library where you won't see a book in sight. But you can explore over 250 antiquities from several periods at the Fordham Museum of Greek, Etruscan, and Roman Art. Good morning. This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Robin Shannon. On this week's show, I join Fordham's Curator of University Art, Jennifer Udell, at the library. We'll learn about the art collection that came from alumnus William D. Walsh and his wife Jane, which is the largest gift of art in Fordham's history. Jennifer, when I think of, you know, collecting artifacts, I think of Indiana Jones. That's immediately what comes to mind. And you said art historians have sort of a love-hate relationship with his character. Can you explain that for me? Well, I'm one of those people who loves Indiana Jones. Raiders of the Lost Ark had a profound effect on me when I saw it for the first time, made me want to be an archaeologist. And so on that level, we do love him. But on the other, on another hand, when we're watching some of the movies, particularly I like to point out, um, well, there's so many instances, but take, for instance, the last movie, which was The Last Crusade. He's, he's swimming through the, the sewers of, of Venice looking for a, a tomb of one of the knights of The Last Crusade, and uh, he, needs to, he needs a light source. So what he does is he actually takes a bone from one of the catacombs, one of, one of the dead who were buried underneath the streets of Venice. He takes one of their bones, just rips it off the skeleton, dips it into the water beneath the canal, which is laden with oil, and then proceeds to light it on fire and use it as a torch. So on the one hand, that's a very clever use of, of found materials, but on the other hand, it's complete desecration of an archaeological site. So those are practices which are frowned upon by uh, all archaeologists, and yet, because the, the movies have really captured the imagination of the public, Harrison Ford himself was also honor, honored with a, an honorary degree from the Archaeological Institute of America, which is the governing body of archaeologists in this country, and it's absolutely hilarious because his practices are, are rather questionable. <laughs> so that's what I mean, that on the one hand, the character has just has been so influential and it's such an exciting, there's such exciting stories and um, with his bullwhip and his fedora, he's very romantic, but on the other hand, his practices leave a lot to be desired. I also personally have a problem with the fact that he seems to know absolutely everything about every culture, which is just not true. You specialize <laughs> in one thing. If you're a classical archaeologist or art historian, as I am, you really don't know all that much about the Aztecs or the Mayans. Um, biblical archaeology is a whole separate thing from, say, other fields of archaeology, and yet Indiana Jones seems to know about everything equally. That is also just, you know, so the not know terribly accurate. <laughs> so the know-it-all factor was what got you. The know-it-all factor is a little bit inaccurate. And you said that there was sort of a joke going around about a tenure review. Yeah, what was, was that about? That, that was a, a joke going around a while ago about um, were Indiana Jones standing for tenure, what his tenure review package would have in it, and the letters written by other colleagues in the field, um, and they were fairly amusing, uh, some of them advocating not giving him tenure because of the way he you know, sort of pillages ancient sites as he's supposedly in the in the quest for truth. He has some rather unorthodox methods and that would have gone into his tenure file and it's rather <laughs> dorky, but 
funny. <laughs> but amusing for art historians. So I want to uh, talk to you, Jennifer, about Fordham's Museum of Greek, Etruscan, and Roman Art. Let's start off with who is William D. Walsh? Okay. William D. Walsh was a alum of Fordham College, Rose Hill, class of 1951. He was a classics major here at Fordham, um, local New York boy, majored in classics here at Fordham. And then after his stint working uh, for the Justice Department, he then went into the private sector, founded the Sequoia Mutual Funds Group, moved out to California, made all of his money, and then that's when he started collecting antiquities. And did he donate everything that I'm looking at here? He donated, I would say you're looking at about 98% of his of his donations. A uh, few things were acquired uh, by gift later. N- a donor who wished to remain anonymous with no connection to Fordham whatsoever just wanted his father's collection of early Christian Byzantine mosaics to find a suitable home where they could be studied and incorporated into the curriculum. So apart from the mosaics, which there are nine, um, collection of coins, which are also in the museum, which were sitting in archives and are themselves a very interesting story. Really, the majority of what you're seeing came from Mr. Walsh's collection. How much is it worth? Um, it all depends on the given market. The given market values fluctuate, but is it in the millions? Yeah, it's in the millions. Mm. It's in the millions. It's it's sad though because what we have here is so much more, at least in my opinion, important and artistically relevant than say things that are going flying off the shelves at contemporary art auctions, which go for ten to twenty million dollars for a painting. Why so, Jennifer? Uh, market and trends and saleability and contemporary art is hot, has been for a while. Um, antiquities, things, antiquities less so. They go through ebbs and flows of popularity. Is there a piece here that is the one piece that's the draw, or is it the whole collection? I would say it's the whole collection. In my estimation, there are certain objects here which are exceptional. I like to say it it has representative examples of the finest and highest quality sculpture, um, some fairly humble ceramics, examples from across the socioeconomic spectrum of antiquity, not just imperial or royal, but actually the type of objects that people would use from day to day. So um, that in itself makes it, makes the collection here a really useful teaching mechanism and all of that, yes. And I want to get into um, mm-hmm. the seminars you teach and what the actual hands-on experience students mm-hmm. get to. Mm-hmm. But first I want to ask you, what focus on Greek, Etruscan, and Roman art, what's the connection? Generally, you have to look at the ancient world as um, a bunch of distinct cultures that were clustered around the Mediterranean Sea, the Mediterranean Basin. Even though Greece is not technically the Mediterranean, it's the Aegean. We call Greece, Rome, Egypt, uh, we call all of those cultures sort of part of the Mediterranean Basin. And because they were, they had proximity to each other through trade and you know, oftentimes through war, um, there were a lot of contacts, a lot of cultural contacts. And so you've got a bunch of cultures that borrowed, assimilated, adapted, absorbed each other's art, religions, rituals. Greece and Rome, or no pun intended, are the typical cultures which comprise the classical 
world, even though classical art is a very specific time frame, literally between the years 437 to about 432, and it really, we're really talking about the period of the Parthenon. That is the classical period, technically, but the cl classical art tends to in encompass Greek and Roman art, two, two different cultures. You know, the Romans were enamored with the Greeks. They were enamored with their literature, with their art, with the glory that was Greece, the classical, you know, the, the world of Pericles, the world of um, Sophocles, the birth of democracy. The Romans were enamored, but also took great joy in, in subjugating the Greeks to their will and conquering them. So it was through all of these different types of interactions that, you know, you see a lot of borrowing and interaction, but we have a general chronology, and the chronology is that the Greeks came first, the Etruscans sort of were contiguous with the Greeks, and then, you know, sort of flourished at the same time in Italy as the Greeks did in Greece, and then along came the Romans who sort of took over the Etruscans, assimilated them, and then lasted further on. Is that why I haven't really heard about the Etruscans? The Etruscans are the third rail of archaeology. No one really likes to deal with them, even though they're very important, because they're not clean. They don't have a clean beginning and end. They didn't, you know, it's, it's easy to say that the Romans just uh, conquered the Etruscans and that they disappeared once the, once the Romans sort of ascended in, you know, the 6th century BC, but that's not really what happened. I mean, so no one really likes to talk about them because they're messy. Eventually they, they died out, but there wasn't just a clean end point. I have to draw attention to the fact that there seems to be a tour here in the Walsh Library, a um, mm -hmm. uh, big open space, and it is very open. It's right in the library, and so do you find yourself seeing people kind of wander in here and either know what they're looking for mm -hmm. or, or just inquisitive like, hey, that looks like some great artwork. Let mm -hmm. me look at it. Uh-huh. <laughs> okay, I take yes. that. Yes. <laughs> that happens. <laughs> do you give random tours, like when people just kind no, of wander no, 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 in? No, no, I have, um, I'm really far too important for that. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> yeah, if, 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 if someone um, emails me and says, you know, I'm coming with a group or can you take us around? And yes, I'm happy to do that. But normally it's, it, you know, it's just like a regular museum. You come in, you, you look around and hopefully you find something you like and you spend time here and that's what, that's what happens. This is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. I'm Robin Shannon at Fordham's Walsh Library, talking with the curator of university art, Jennifer Udell. We're discussing the Fordham Museum of Greek, Etruscan, and Roman art, the largest gift of art in Fordham's history. Am I allowed to ask if you have a favorite? Um, I have favorites. I don't have one favorite. I have... Um, being a vase person, um, I one of the Greek vases... In, that we have. One of the vases from Athens is one of my favorite objects in the painted pottery realm. Um, the sculpture, uh, we're sitting next to a monumental marble portrait head here of the Emperor Hadrian, which is extraordinarily interesting uh, because although it's Hadrian, you can really tell that it came from 
um, the ancient Near East, not Rome, but it's really it's really a portrait of the Roman emperor that's combined with some regional stylistic imprints of Syria, Lebanon. He was governor of Syria, actually, um, in the early part of his career. And as emperor, he spent very little time in the city of Rome. He was quite peripatetic, as they say, well-traveled. Um, so it would make sense that there would be portraiture, monumental portraiture of Hadrian from from that part of the world. And we have a really important example here. So there's that. What's it made of? Marble. Marble. Do you like it because of the way the artist did the marble? or Do I like it because of history or because of its formal and aesthetic values is what you're asking me. I like it for both. For As a teaching object, it's fantastic portrait of the Emperor Caracalla as a youth, which is exceedingly important because it's uh, bronze, which in itself is extraordinary because most bronze sculptures were melted down in antiquity for the purposes of being made into arms and, and armor and weapons because, you know, that's that was the first, they were the first to go in times of conflict. They were very expensive, so it was an elite object. Um, it's important because it's a recognizable subject matter, the Emperor Caracalla. It's important because it's Caracalla depicted at a time of his life which is not entirely common, meaning as a child, as opposed to when he became emperor many years later. Um, he looks so much different as a child than as he did as an emperor. As an emperor, his portraits took on this severe, stern, uh, grouchy, mean uh, demeanor, and he was a cruel, a cruel ruler, and his, his, his imperial portraits really show that, um, and yet this bronze we have as him as a child, I like to say, looks more like Pedro Martinez than it does uh, the Emperor Caracalla. Uh, it's a very different, you know, it's a very different look. It's also very important because we have a very good idea where it comes from, stylistically uh, speaking, and because of Comparanda scattered throughout other museums, we can, we can uh, trace it back to the ancient city of Buban, which is in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, and this we get into one of those um, sort of controversial areas um, because of the modern history of Buban, which you know, basically uh, a lot of the sculpture to come out of the ground there has been subject to claims by the Turkish and Turkish authorities because the excavation wasn't, was not legal during the time uh, that these statues were excavated. However, from the moment the sculpture did come out of the ground to when it was first put up on for auction at Sotheby's in London in 1968, and Mr. Walsh only bought it in the late 90s, the, the statue has been continually published and exhibited and has been out there and has, for all intents and purposes, it's not unknown. It's not as if it disappeared from view and then magically appeared in the Walsh collection in Fordham. Everyone knows where it's been. It's even been published by esteemed Turkish scholars. So that's a very important head for all of those formal aspects I was talking about, for the, the context, historical relevance, we know who it is, um, but also because it, it, it brings the question of provenance and ethical collecting and the role of a museum such as ours into the, into the pedagogy. You know.
Jennifer, yeah. define what ethical collecting is. Um, well, ethical collecting is essentially you don't want to buy any object that doesn't have a paper trail, proving that it was legally excavated and legally exported um, according to various laws that were in place at the time. Um, these days, you really don't want to touch, you, you just, you don't want to buy any antiquities if they don't have any kind of clean provenance telling you that they have been out of the country of origin since at least 1970. That's the UNESCO convention. Um, What's the UNESCO convention? UNESCO convention was a mechanism put in place by foreign governments to prevent the illegal export of cultural property from source countries. Uh, UNESCO was, was a first step in sort of stemming the tide of illegal trafficking of objects, um, be them sculptures, vases, coins, gold, glass, whatever. Um, the problem with UNESCO was that it didn't go far enough. It, it didn't take into account that countries have their own set of laws in place and how do you reconcile individual country laws with sort of this overarching international law. And one of the things about UNESCO was you had to prove an object was stolen and it had to be stolen from a publicly inventoried uh, collection such as a museum. So really what UNESCO did was try to, try to stop um, the export of objects stolen from museums acquired by other museums. Um, the problem with it is that it didn't deal with the material that was going through private hands, private dealers, private collectors. And so... Um, Which one was more prevalent? Uh, that's a very good question. Um, I would say the trade through private dealers, unscrupulous private dealers, was maybe a lot more damaging to cultural property than museums buying objects from so, so help me get a picture of this mm -hmm. so you're you know you have this artwork that mm -hmm. some are in museums in another country um, and then some are maybe in people's homes mm -hmm. and then something happens mm -hmm. and they're stolen yeah. what's the pathway or the difference between the pathways for the museums getting other artifacts from museums and the personal collectors getting them Objects in publicly inventoried museums are publicly, publicly inventoried, and they're very well known. Um, there's there's the other there's the other part of that where you've got completely unscrupulous private collectors who don't care if an object was stolen from a museum; they just want it, and that's an issue. Um, there are a lot of loopholes. I wouldn't say loopholes, but there are a lot of there are a lot of different paths. But UNESCO itself is a good start, but it didn't really address all all the angles. And so, in 1994, another set of laws was passed to sort of patch that up. Now, the problem with these laws is that there's also issues of commerce and cutting and and. 1970 is very arbitrary. And also, back before this became an issue, people didn't keep very good records. Things can be perfectly valid and just not have very good records. And in fact, the complete provenance is the holy grail of antiquities collectors. There are very few objects have complete provenance. I mean, there are gaps in ownership histories. It's just the name of the game. And as a curator, you have to weigh whether those gaps are worth the risk. Are worth the risk. Our objects don't fall into that category. I mean, our objects have been checked against the stolen art, um, the art lost register database. 
um, our objects in this collection were checked against the notorious database of one Giacomo Medici, who was You the, have to explain that. Oh, Giacomo Medici, yes. Okay, so Giacomo Medici was an Italian... Um, a nefarious art dealer who ran quite, who ran, who had quite an active trade in stolen and plundered objects from Italian tombs. He he employed a network of tombaroli uh, tomb robbers to illegally excavate, get stuff out of the ground, and then it was given to Medici, and then he stored them and he kept all of his objects in uh, Freeport, Switzerland, is this sort of like no man's land of of repository and okay so his collection was found by the authorities stacks and stacks and stacks of polaroids of objects that had gone through his collection and had ended up in various museums many museums by means of other art dealers they all basically went through Medici so he was selling some and keeping some he was he was no, he was selling all of them Ultimately, that was the goal: was to sell all of them. Um, luckily, none of the objects in our collection have come through, have come through Medici. So, um, is it hard to, to track those down? Well, because of this lovely database with the with the Polaroids, and he also kept a flow chart of of <laughs> the, the hierarchy of from him, the tomb robber to him, to his network of dealers. I mean, he made it very easy for the for the. <laughs> Authorities to track down a lot of the objects. It's um, almost like when a criminal puts something on Facebook or YouTube. Correct, right? and in fact, and in fact, there's some wonderful there's some wonderful pictures of Medici posing in American museums with objects that he himself supposedly, you know, excavated or excavated air quotes. Um, you know, just kind of posing thumbs up. Yeah, it's 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 great. They can't help themselves. So none of our objects, uh, none of our objects came through that. You know, we have. You know, we well, don't, Jennifer, wait, you got to tell me what happened to this guy. You know, it's, it's funny. You'd think I should know that, but I'm fairly sure he was busted in his prison. I, I need to check that. I have not met Giacomo Medici personally. <laughs> so, but his story is, you know, the subject of many books, um, one called The Medici Conspiracy, believe it or not. Um, uh, they, he, he was quite the character, quite the character. What are some of the other issues that art historians have to face whether good or bad? Um, sometimes you're offered an object and it's phenomenal, but you don't have the money to actually display it. That you actually, when someone says, I want to give you this, you have to say, that's great. Now can you give me a couple million dollars to display it correctly? You know, that's a problem because, you know, we run on, we, we, we run on very small budgets here. I mean, we, we literally rely on the kindness of strangers and patrons and donors. So explain to me the process, I guess, for how you would choose the right way to display a particular item. Well, let's take the mosaics again because they're, they're, um, cause they're new and they were just installed last summer. Um, the, the idea is... You want to display them um, for maximum viewing benefit for the visitor. Uh, now, the mosaics we have here at Fordham were all floor mosaics. They were mosaics that decorated church floors. But do you really want to put them on the floor, or do you want to sort of break away from that and do something different with them so that they're easier for the viewer to see? So obviously, we opted to mount them to the wall. Now, okay, so that was that was the easy part. Then you've got to look at the fact that the last object that we received from the Walsh family, which arrived here in April, also a mosaic, seven by seven feet, 
over 2,000 pounds. Okay, how on earth do you install that onto a wall? Well, you have to, you have to devise a system so that your object is very <laughs> securely fastened to the wall. Um, so there's no falling so over? So there's no falling over and hurting people and getting sued, because that's no good. That's no fun. So there's that. Um, vases are difficult. Vases are difficult, and they're my favorite thing, because that's what I specialized in graduate school. But they're difficult because oftentimes, and this is no ex exception, you know, they are displayed side by side by side, and to the untrained eye, they all look very similar. I like to call the vases at the Met the you, you know the flyover territory not because they're not phenomenally beautiful and not because they're not installed beautifully but because people don't know how to deal with them and so they sort of run through them to get to the impressionist paintings um, they're they're a challenge they're really very much a challenge and I find that the only way to get people interested in them is to take them through myself and really get them really kind of put a vase up to their grill and make them look closely at what's depicted. And um, So is the decorating sort of subjective? Uh, yeah, I, would th I, would, I think so. Jennifer, I want to talk about the seminars that you have here, because it, this is not just a, a beautiful museum. It's a place where students can actually come and physically handle mm -hmm. some of the artifacts yeah. in a training process. Right. So tell me what you do. Tell me what, how you go about your training. Well, it's a, hard, it's, a, it's a challenging class, believe it or not. It's called Museum Studies in Ancient Art. And basically, it deals with a lot of the issues we've already talked about. What are the best ways to display ancient objects? Um, what do you want to bring out when you just, what, what are, what's the kind of thing you're going to focus on when you've got an object? How do you highlight it? What, you know, what's, what's the best way to tell a story? Um, what about the ethical, the ethical questions that, um, confront a curator? How do you deal, how do you deal with that? What about conservation issues? So we deal with all of these things. I have a great time with the students. We have loads and loads of fun. They, they, they get a lot out of it. And part of what we get to do and they get to do is they get to take the objects out of the cases and actually handle them and look at them and really, really touch them and see you know get a tactile sense of how the objects were made and you know that's 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 great for them because who can say they can do that is to handle a 2500 year old object um is it just so that they can actually uh, observe and appreciate the art or do they actually have to like clean them or something along those lines no no no, no that's the <laughs> there's no cleaning involved <laughs> although i did have a uh, I, I was joking around with a colleague of mine last year about having the students sort of as part of my museum studies class just sort of stand in front of the mosaics with q-tips and clean tile by tile just like kind of free labor you know having them just, and then just, you know, releasing them at the end of an hour and 15 minutes. Okay, see you next week. You know, that's the class. But, no, we don't do that here. <laughs> um, so the other thing is we try, I try to make, uh, I try to gear the classes towards one special topic, you know. So, and, that, and that's difficult because um, you have to balance a, a classroom seminar with a class that's really consists of everybody's individual independent studies because all the kids are working on something different. Lately it's been kind of the tertiary issues that concern a museum curator, which is interesting for them. I've had great guest speakers come. I had a friend of mine from the Met who's an exhibition designer who 
actually design this gallery space. I had an absolutely hilarious guy who's a former border and customs control agent who now works consulting collectors on risks if they want to acquire an, an antiquity. I mean, he, he, he switched fields because he saw the rampant abuses by foreign governments coming into the States and walking through museums and saying, that's ours, that's ours, that's stolen without any kind of proof. But knowing that museums are so gun-shy as far as bad publicity, just sort of leave us alone, take what you want. So he sort of, he saw that up close, and he's now in the private sector. He came in and he addressed my classes about, you know, busting, you know, various dealers, and he was an absolute riot. So, that, you know, they learned from him. And What's I, his name? His name? Shout out to former special agent James McAndrew. That's his name. What made you want to go into art history? I grew up in New York going to the Met. After college, during which time I was actually a fine arts major, I went to Europe and I uh, went to Greece and Rome for the first time. And I remember being struck by this sort of overarching feeling of annoyance, that an irritation that when I was over there, Looking at all these things, I didn't understand what the hell was going on. I didn't understand why I would be walking down the street in Rome and then out of nowhere there'd be a column. Or, like, what the hell was this this, this pile, this old sort of ruined set of buildings doing at the foot of the Parthenon? What the hell is that? And it was just, so I got annoyed, really. I mean, I was also, like, attracted to the objects of course <laughs> they were beautiful but it was just this sense of really wanting to find out what um what the what the, what the hell was going on i want to thank fordham's curator of university art jennifer udell this has been fordham conversations on 90.7 wfuv you can hear fordham conversations every sunday at 6 a.m you can friend us on facebook follow us on twitter and catch up on past shows with our weekly podcast stay with us george bodarkey and cityscaper up next for Fordham Conversations, I'm Robin Shannon.